Welcome to the Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work. How being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Happiness Podcast, I'll be speaking with people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who have had career changes to entrepreneurs who have forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. I am Lucy Cavendish and I am now a psychotherapist and I see individuals and couples and I see a lot of teenagers, um, which I really enjoy. And I am writing a book about bringing up teenagers for parents, uh, as if I know the answer to that, which I don't, but I'm trying to help people. And I also do courses for adults, actually, um, to help them with their teens. That's the main thing that's really come up. Is and before that, you were a writer? Before that, yes, I was a writer. And I still, I still do some writing, but I was a journalist yeah, in the national newspapers and I had a column and I interviewed lots of celebrities, loads and loads of celebrities. And I travelled around the world and I used to live in New York and then I used to go every week to LA and meet... Hollywood people, um, and I once stayed the night at Cher's house, yeah, and her chef cooked me an English breakfast, and he was really excited because he said he hadn't fried anything in about 10 years, and when I said I wanted my eggs fried, he nearly fainted. Uh, yeah, so I've had a really exciting... And did, you, exciting did you sing night. the Shoot Shoot song with Cher? No, we didn't sing anything. She had some laryngitis. She literally appeared in the sort of murky gloom. You can't really see her. I think she lives in a crypt or something, anyway. Um, yeah, so I've had, I've had a really interesting and varied life. I've travelled around a lot. And how long were you a journalist for? A long time. I think I started at about 20, and then I probably stopped being... I started training as a therapist about seven years ago, but it takes a long time. It, it took me four years to train, uh, so for most of my life. And it's only really been the last two years that I've been in private practice. So what decided you, Lucy, from moving from being a hugely successful journalist, travelling world, talking to celebrities, to want to be a therapist? I think what I was being asked to write changed. When I first started out, um, I used to, one of my happiest, happiest times was working for the Sunday Telegraph magazine, as it was then called. Um, and Alexander Chancellor was, launched it. And then um, a really talented editor called Rebecca Tyrrell took over. And I was interviewing people along with Nigel Farndell, who was a, the sort of Lynn Barber of the Sunday Telegraph, and he felt much nicer. Um, and we were allowed to do like 3,000 word pieces, really long. And we'd go and spend like ages with our interviewees, you know, and, and it, it was great fun. So you'd go and meet someone. I, I interviewed John Franken, the, the jockey, who I had this enormous crush on because I love racehorses. And I basically kind of moved in with him for about a week um, and wrote a, a big, big piece on him. And, and I really enjoyed it. Did you live up to your expectations? Well, you know, he's a, he's a, well, he was a simple man and just knew a lot about horses. But it wasn't just about him. It was like the whole world, you know, I think he was in Lambourne, the whole world of the jockeys and the trainers. And so we, you got a real insight into someone's world. And, and we were allowed to write these massively long interviews. And it was unbelievably, you know, it was, it was really enjoyable. I was really proud of what I was writing. And before that, I'd worked on the Evening Standard magazine. And my editor was called Adam Edwards, and he was completely potty. I mean, like, really, but a total journalist. 
you know, he was at lunchtime oh booze really, but I mean, and I really, he loved gossip and he loved controversy and he loved all that journalistically thing. And, and so I'd really enjoyed that. And I think I, and, and then when I went to Sunday Telegraph, I took it all very seriously and I thought I was a very serious journalist. And who was editing then? Dominic Lawson, who was actually a brilliant editor to work for. Um, and I really liked him and he was very kind to me and I really enjoyed it. And then um, I went to New York for a while and then things went really wrong uh, in my personal life. So I came back and I was still working for the Sunday Telegraph. And then I got a call from the Observer asking if I wanted to launch the food magazine, which seemed a completely random thing to do, but it was brilliant. It was a brilliant, brilliant job. Do you like food? Yes. I go up and down. I do really. I mean, I didn't like food. I was a useless cook and wasn't interested in food at all. I kept saying to them, why don't we do the job? I don't know anything about food. I can't even cook, you know, a grain of rice. And they said, it's not about the food. It's about being an editor and you're, you're, you're a good editor. But I started it and it was great. There was me. There was only three of us. And then I got really into food and it was really interesting. And the chefs, the whole thing was interesting. Um, anyway, so, it's cut. so then I ended up having another... By this point, I, I ended up having four children and I was writing the column for Stella about my life and that was fine. But gradually what happened was things like this started to happen. I'd be interviewing someone and just as I was about to walk in, that this is for a national newspaper, the editor of the section would ring me and say, oh, by the way, um, we've written the headline, so if you could just get... Um, if you could just get them to say this, that'd be great. They'd already written things like, um, I'm so upset that I've ruined my children's life by being an alcoholic. You know, and so I'd go, so in, it felt awful. So I'd spend the entire interview trying to get them to say things like, I'm really happy in my life, but I've, you know, but I've ruined my children's lives by being an alcoholic. Like, nobody says that. Um, and also you started, so you'd have the editor really wanting, really wanting the interviews to say, the interviewees to say very specific things, and it was mm. my job to get it out of them. Meanwhile, you started having the PRs that then started to sit in with interviews, which we didn't used to have, to make sure that precisely that didn't happen. And I would be sitting there, you know, with this horrible battle, this awful feeling in the pit of my stomach that I wasn't going to be able to produce the goods and that got worse and then I was being asked to write a lot about my my own private life and it's very complicated in a way because for me that was okay because actually I think if we don't talk about serious issues that have affected us like bereavement my father I mean I've written a lot about my father he used to come home all the time who was, a, who was an alcoholic and a really, really difficult man. And I've written a lot about that because I think for other people that have been brought up by alcoholics, it's really, really important mm -hmm. to know that you're not the only person that actually um, the way you feel about yourself or about life, oh, you know, I feel that way. And I've got a lot of response. Um, or about being a mother or about having three boys when all I really wanted to have was a girl. Um, and I, so I didn't, I don't feel, people say, how could you do that? I actually don't feel that. I think it's important. I think now it's much more open. You know, if, if I had a gender-fluid child, well, hang on. It might, I wouldn't actually write about that because that would be up to my, to my child whether or not he or she was okay with that. But I think the area is important. It's why I do my talks called Talking to Teens with Parents, so they can come and voice their issues, because otherwise they're really alone. They just feel really alone when actually they're not. And, and that's why the internet is brilliant, because you can find support and support groups and networks and all that. But it really came to a head when um, they asked me to write a lot about my children. And I would be writing about them in a way that I thought was quite serious. So one of my sons had a real issue with his weight. And I felt it was quite important because there was a big childhood obesity crisis. And it was important to sort of address what was going on and what mistakes I had made as a parent or things that I felt I hadn't done that, didn't, that wasn't helping. And actually, the newspaper put a headline saying, I'm so embarrassed of my obese son. 
Yeah. And I actually thought I was going to throw up when I read it. And they actually took it down off the net in the end. The piece itself wasn't saying that at all, but that's what the headline said. And there were photographs of him. And the Twitter sphere went absolutely mad. And I got a lot of, a lot of hate. A lot, I mean, like, and I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't handle it. I felt so ashamed. And how about your son? How did you...? Well, he was too young to read it. He was about yeah. eight or nine or something. He's actually... Um, he's found stuff on him since then, and he just thinks it's funny. I mean, he, he's now lost a lot of weight. It's like a Greek god. Um, but the issue was that people don't read beyond the headline. They just read the headline. Um, and then every time an article came out, I started feeling quite ill. So I was trying to get all these quotes out of celebrities. So I sort of understand, you know, all these people who say, that, you know, they've made stuff up in interviews and the editor says, my goodness, you know, I can't believe that my journalist would do that. That's just not true. You are pushed and pushed and pushed and the rates are slashed. So you're, and, and, and I had this identity of myself as I am a journalist. This is what I do. And my, actually, I'd wake up and I'd, you know, and I'd be touting around for work because I was freelance. I'd be saying to the man I'm now married to but wasn't married to then, you know, I, should I do this, should I do that? I, every time an article came out, I thought I was going to be ill. I was terrified my kids were going to read anything I wrote. The column, I started thinking I can't write that anymore because I felt it was very exposing for my kids. And while they were little and it was funny, that was fine, but things were changing. And in the end... Uh, my husband and I had gone to the Hebrides on a holiday that went horribly, horribly wrong, but never mind. Um, and I thought, why am I even with this man? But the one thing he did that was good, uh, when I was sort of crying and wailing, so I can't carry on being a journalist, he looked up from his newspaper and said, well, you know, why don't you just do something else then? And the idea that I could do something else, like, it never occurred to me, which makes me sound really stupid. But I'd done it for so long. My identity was so caught up with being a journalist and being successful and being well-connected and clacking about in high heels and going to parties and going into a room and knowing everyone, which was fun. It was fun. But I, you know, I, I couldn't see that I could go to something else. So after that, what did you do? Well, I said to him, what do you think I should do then? And he said... Well, people like you, you like people, you're good at listening, you're really damaged, so, you know, you've got lots of experience in damaged, wounded people. Why don't you train to be a counsellor? I think you'd be brilliant. Um, and I thought, okay. And so I went on the internet, and there was a course, and I could only do Thursday days because of the kids and pickups and all that stuff. And there was a course at the Mary Ward Centre in London that happened to be on Thursdays, and so I applied for it. And you did six weeks. It was just an introduction to counselling. I went along and I did my six weeks and I thought, oh, you know, this is great. Um, and, and then did so you then continue you, writing through that? I did. Yeah, I did, actually. Um, that caused a few problems because people on the course were very concerned that I would write about them. I had told everybody that I wouldn't do that and I never, ever, ever have and I never, ever, ever will because that was their, you know, they, 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 they was confidential. Mm. You know, a lot of stuff went on. But I don't think I was ever really accepted in the group. That may also be for other reasons, but I think it was difficult for people. I just couldn't see myself, I suppose, as they saw me. So they would pick up a newspaper and I'd have written something in it, and some people were very impressed, and some people thought I was a sort of ghastly, awful, shouty human being in the newspapers. Um, but I carried on writing. I did that. I then did another year. Then I decided to apply to do my diploma, advanced diploma. Um, and gradually, over the next three years of training, I started cutting down on writing. Um, and I stopped doing my column. And then one day I said, Okay, that's it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to set up private practice. And I had one client who didn't know she was my only client. I'm not going to say who she is. <laughs> um, and she found me, and I did say to her, I've, I've only just qualified, and she is American, and she said, I don't care, I think you sound great. <laughs> so I said, okay. Um, 
and I and I was earning virtually no money. Um, and she was my first client. She's still my client. And gradually people emerged out and, of the woodwork. And have you tended to specialise over the last few years? No. I do integrative counselling, which is a general form of counselling. Um, but, but I do do a lot of work with teenagers, and I really like that. And I've become a bit of a sort of go-to person for, for teenagers. And I see teen, teenagers come from, like, Warwickshire, all over, actually. And how did that happen? How did that emerge? Uh, we had to do a placement. When we, you have to get 100 hours um, to pass your diploma. And I got a placement in Reading with a, uh, a place called the Number 5 Youth Counselling Centre, which was a brilliant place to work. And I just, um, that's, I just got a real taste for working with teenagers. I mean, I mean, from 10, I don't see people under 10, from 10 up to about sort of 24, 25. I just like their energy. Oh, I, like, I like working with teenagers. And I think the key to it is, I suppose I feel like a teenager, you know. I'm, I'm really unshockable. People tell me really shocking things, and I'm completely unshockable. Is that because you were a journalist? I think it probably is. So I think the way they mix together is, you know, journalists want to find out stuff, really, don't they? You know, they've got inquiring minds. I mean, I find it amazing when I meet people and they seem to have no interest. You know, when I meet people, I want to know everything about them. What pet have they got? Where do they live? Why did they choose a chihuahua over a Maltese poodle? You know, they married their brother's best friend. That's interesting. I find Are everything you pretty... Like Were you always curious? Yes, I think people? as a child I was. But I couldn't imagine why you wouldn't be. Um, and then I meet people who obviously aren't. And I, I kind of think, why, why wouldn't you want to know all that stuff? And hear about it. And, I mean, when you are interviewing celebrities, that is part of it. Is it what makes Helen Mirren Helen Mirren? Now, you may not find the answer to that, because Helen Mirren's a very experienced actress. And trying to find out anything from actors that's genuine and real is impossible. Um, and they Worse were, than politicians. Well, I interviewed David Cameron once. In fact, I, 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 got, I put a big bet on him to become the Tory uh, leader and then the next Prime Minister, way before that happened, and it, and it came in. I went about five grand on David Cameron, so... Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's because when I interviewed him, I thought, he's a personable chap. I can't see why you wouldn't vote him in as your leader. There was nothing not... You know, he was sort of completely Teflon. No, politicians are tricky. They are tricky. But so, actors are really tricky. So who's, who's more straightforward? Writers, authors, sports people, but they only want to talk about sport. It's really interesting, isn't it, sports people? I interview rugby players and all they, they've got no life outside rugby. They just play rugby. Um, so that's sort of interesting and then not interesting. Chefs are brilliant. Actually, chefs are brilliant. I loved interviewing chefs. Because um, they give you tips and they cook for you or they take you to their restaurant. And they're really passionate people. Um, so I really like them. They're, they're lots of fun. And then business people, sorry, business people are fun. can be really interesting. Some. And, and teenagers? What, in terms of working with them? Mm. Um, I like working with teenagers because they've not had long on the planet. So it doesn't take that long to, you know, the effects are quite relatively quick. The, the downside is it's very painful to see a girl who is starving herself to death, really, mm. and to know that that's going to take time. And also to know that to a certain extent that will never leave. You know, a 14-year-old girl who's anorexic will be an anorexic or will have issues with food, actually probably for the entire rest of her life, but it's learning how to manage it. So with some, with some teens, I'm very practical, um, and with some teens, it's much more about how they feel about themselves. Um, no one's going to like this, but essentially... You know, people say it's social media. It, it, not, none of them say it's social media. They all tell me stories about their upbringing. And that doesn't mean to say parents aren't trying to do a good job. But when your son says, all I want to do is be a fashion designer, and the parents say, no, you're, that's not going to happen, you're going to be a civil engineer, then you've got 
trouble on your hands. Mm. And parents do this all the time. I do it. We all do it. When my daughter comes and says to me, I hate my body. You know, this is my beautiful, beautiful 12-year-old daughter who I would, you know, scratch and fight for and who has, as far as I'm concerned, a beautiful body. Mm. I want to say to her, don't be ridiculous, you've got a beautiful body. But what I know is that's not listening to what she says. So I say, okay, you know, what? tell me about that. That makes me sound like a, like a sort of brilliant parent or maybe a wet parent, I don't know. Lots of people think that's... Um, Rubbish. And the other thing I do is I don't, have, I don't track my children at all. I don't check their social media. I don't look at their phones. I've got no idea where they are most of the time. And the reason why I do that is because I've, I trust them. And why do I trust them? Because I've brought them up. And so when you're constantly not trusting your children, what your children think is, well, why don't you trust me? You obviously don't think you've done a good job. You know, it's, so I like teens because you, you can, they get all that. And there's a lot in the news about... Um teenagers these days being more anxious, more depressed, more suicides. Uh, is that right? Is it just something that, or, or is it something the papers have just decided to write about the media have grabbed hold of? Have things changed? I think it's very difficult. I think I was anxious and I was depressed and I was certainly had an eating disorder. Did anyone ask me about it, talk to me about it, try and give me any help? Say, oh gosh, I wonder why you only weigh six stone. No. We just all pretended it was fine. So part of it may be that we didn't have the language to talk about it. I mean, I'm 52. Um, I mean, I wasn't six stone, but I definitely wasn't, you know, I was throwing peas out of the window. And my mother, bless her. You know, I said to her now, when I was that thin, I see pictures and I was thin, 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 right? And I'm not naturally a thinny, thinny person. It's not my natural body shape. I said, you know, to why? And I was throwing peas out of the window and eating half a mango a day and then crying because I'd eaten it. Why didn't you say anything? And she said, well, I just thought it was better just, you know, so you get over it. So we've got a different attitude. We've got a very different attitude. So kids are seriously up on mental health, really up on it. Um, they know all about mental health issues and anxiety and depression. And they know all about, you know, the drugs and the pills and the doctor and everyone knows about self-harming, and they're all now getting pretty up there about you know, gender identity and fluidity and all sorts of different forms of sexuality. So I think it's more talked about. I would suggest that social media, well, there's been a lot of research into it, has proven to be not brilliant for girls, but actually the researcher says it doesn't really affect boys that much. And why is that? I think girls are more about the looks and you're fat and you're this and you're that and, ooh, look at your eyebrows. I mean, there's just a much... But, but we, we were like that as girls. I had a horrible time being a teenage girl. Teenage girls are really, really nasty. They do nasty things and they go off in little groups and they exclude you and then they're your friend. There's always one of those little teenage girls that everybody likes who's sort of pretty and can do gym and stuff and everyone wants to be their friend. And she sort of picks and chooses. And when you're in, it's heaven. And when you're out, it's horrible. And that still happens. Boys just don't seem to do that. They just sort of, they just don't seem to have that in and out. Um, my teenage girl clients talk about friends, or not friends, frenemies, all the time. That's not what boys talk about. They talk about... Actually, what they talk about is expectations of them by their family and by society mm. and how difficult they find that. And how do you help each of those groups? Oh, it depends really on what they need help with. A lot of the time they just want to talk. They just want to be heard. They just want someone to say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. And what's the top bit of advice you give to a mum or dad? Communicate. Communicate, communicate, and, and stop blaming them. I mean, I feel really sorry for teenagers. Always being told they're useless and awful. You know, and they, I tell you why they're anxious. Because they get told that if they don't do well, they're going to die, you know, essentially. They're not going to get a house. Like, who cares about, really? Is that what life's about, getting a house? You know, I don't care about getting a house, but I do care that my kids are happy. I don't care if they get a house or they never get out. I don't care if they live in a tent, you know. 
And so there's this whole thing, if I don't do well, I won't get a job, or I won't get a job that pays well. And if I don't get a job that pays well, I won't be able to be on the housing, the property ladder. And if I'm not on the property ladder, I'm a hobo and I'm a waster and, and, and I'm a nobody. And, and, I, and I shouldn't even exist because I'm so rubbish. That's how they think, I'm so rubbish. Um, and I said, wait, where did you get, where did you get that idea from? They say, well, you know, there's pressure at home. There's massive amounts of pressure at some schools, especially if they're at fee-paying school um, and, and probably state schools. Like my kids are at state school, so I don't know. But there seems to be a lot of pressure on keeping up in the table. And of course, they need other parents to come and pay money. So there's lots and lots and lots of pressure. Um, and then this feeling that if I don't get four A star stars or whatever they get, my life is finished. I'm finished as a person. And they haven't even got to 18 yet. So I'm not surprised they're anxious. Mm -hmm. And are you happier now than you were as a journalist? Yes. Right, well, let's test it. Yes, yes, We're yes. now going to do yes. the uh, workplace happiness survey. Great. Okay, so it's do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? So, uh, Lucy, when you were a journalist, uh, you would be paid for your copy. Yeah. Now you're um, a therapist. Uh, you pay yourself in a way because you charge your clients what you want to charge them. You decide how many clients you're going to have. So if you think about this question about reward in terms of your pay, do you think you're fairly paid for the work that you do? Um, I think it's complicated because um, I set my fees, but, it, but there is a market rate, and for therapy I would say it's low. Okay. But I can't charge vast amounts of money because other people aren't charging vast amounts of money, and therapy is not a massively well-rewarded, in terms of remuneration, uh, job. Am I rewarded in a sense of doing a good thing? Yes, massively so. So I'd say like five as a, as a therapist. As a journalist, I was, on a lot, I was on very good money. So what would you have been as a journalist? Oh, I probably would have been a ten. Okay. Do you feel recognised when you do something well? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a ten. And how do you feel recognised? They tell me lots of lovely things and write to me and parents say, my God, you've totally changed my child's life and individuals and couples, we one couple are getting married and I'm going to the wedding and so I know and I get, they, they tell me lots, of, they're really good. They, I get a lot of feedback from my clients and it's really nice. Well, when you were a journalist, did you equally get feedback on your colleagues? Yeah, 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 from the public. <laughs> yeah, not necessarily from my editor. Uh, yeah. Do you have enough information to do your job well? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I provide that. I read books, magazine articles, I go on loads of training courses. There's more information out there. There's lots of information out there for therapy. So how much time do you spend reading and...? Not as much as I'd like, but um, I tra I'm training in Imago Couples Therapy at the moment, so I do a lot of work around that. I mean, I, I put aside quite a few hours a week and do reading and uh, thinking. Bill Gates had this thing where um, Everything he wanted to read, he put in a pile, and he'd take a week to go and read every year. Yes. And Warren Buffett's a great reader. He reads every morning. Yeah, and we might, when we go on holiday, I always take about 20 books, and um, the kids go, well, you're not going to get through all that, and I always do. Very good. You know. Okay, so next question. Do you feel information is openly shared with you at work? Um, how do I answer that one? I don't really have work. And I am the information. So what do I say? Yes. And so um, just thinking uh, about the people that you talk to. Yes. You're a therapist for. Do you find that they openly share information with you? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know <laughs> because I don't know what information they have. So how do you find out? Well, it's not up to me to find out the information. It's up to them to tell me what they want to tell me. So can you tell if people are being straightforward? So not necessarily. To you. Not necessarily. No. You know, it takes time. Therapy takes therapy can take a long, long, long time. There is some kind of idea that when people come and sit in the chair, that they're telling you the truth, 
um, which is really bizarre because when I was on my course, I was like, why, why are you all assuming that what that person is saying is actually, you know, the gospel? Um, it might, you know, and also what is the truth? If you sat myself or my siblings down and said, let's talk about our childhood, you'd get four completely different, um, you'd, four, you'd get four completely different stories. But that would be fine because in the way it's our experience. So my experience of my father might be very different to my sister's experience of our father. And she might say, no, he wasn't like that. He was like this. But neither viewpoint is wrong and neither viewpoint is utterly right. It's mm. just a viewpoint. And then when you worked in the press, do you feel that information was openly shared with you there? No, no, journalists are secretive. Also, I wouldn't trust anything they say. You know, I'd get interview people and they'd say, oh, just off the record. I'd be like, please don't tell me something. There's no off the record with journalists. I'm a journalist. Why are you telling me all this? Stop it. You know, uh, no, journalists are sort of weasley and secretive and, yeah, no, not do you really. Do you like journalists? I think journalists are great. Yeah, they're the most fun people. They're really fun. They're really fun people. And when I do meet another journalist, I go straight back into being a journalist. We're like... <laughs> But also, you know, edit, editor, you know, manage, management don't want to tell journalists anything, right? Why? Uh, because they're about to cut their pay or sack them or, you know, tell them that they're going to be hung out to dry because they've got to sacrifice someone to whatever commission it is. And, you'd, you know, so you see them all squirreled away in a, in a meeting room and, you, don't, you know, you don't know what it's about. And then there's lots of gossip around about so-and-so's going to be sacked as editor and so-and-so's going to be replaced and... You know. So, so if you were scoring that question when you as were a journalist, journalist, I'd say about four. Yeah. <laughs> really. So now you're in control of your own destiny. Clearly, you know what you're going to do, and you know yes. where you want to take things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Next question. Uh, do you feel empowered to make decisions? Yes, completely empowered. But that's a real contrast now to mm. what you were saying about being a journalist and even being given the headline that you had to write. Yes, completely pieces. mad. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm empowered to make decisions because it's me that's making decisions. You know, no one's making decisions for me. If I was working as a therapist in the NHS, it might be a very different story, but I work for myself, so I don't really have anyone making decisions for me. And it was probably this lack of empowerment that ultimately made you decide to leave being a journalist. The fact that you felt that you were being corralled and controlled yeah, and I felt actually a deep sense of, I felt I was behaving in a way that was immoral in, in the end, actually. And I, I could see that I was hurting people through what I was writing. And actually, you know, I haven't been put on the planet to hurt people. I don't want to do that. Some people are fine with that. Journalists like to do a bit of gossip and a bit of stirring. And, but I, I don't want to do that. I have no interest in, in making people, people have a tough, you know, even, even Helen Mirren, you know, even someone you look at and think, wow, I, I love their life. Everyone's carrying a cross, you know, you just don't know what it is. I'm not here to make that burden heavier. Mm. I'm here to, to help lighten it, not make it heavier. And journalists, well, it's not true, actually, because journalism also provides an incredible, you know, journalism is a great thing when it works provides information, helps people. A lot of people writing the papers now really, you know, it's helping people to read what they're writing and they expose things that need exposing. Mm. So it's not a bad thing. Okay. Do you feel trusted to make decisions? Yes, because I trust myself to make my decisions. Yes. And what about when you were a journalist? Were you trusted then? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I mean, as an editor, I run my own show. That was good. Roger Alton was the editor observer then, who, who's brilliant. And he would say, why have you put that picture on the cover? And I'd go, so I can't hear. So was someone talking? I just thought I heard Roger. Oh, maybe not. You know, we just had a very funny relationship. I'd go, whose magazine is that, Roger? Is it your magazine or is it my magazine? <laughs> it's, oh, God, your magazine. Like, okay, good. Be quiet. Do you have the resources you need to do your job well? Yeah, yeah, there's lots of resources for therapists. We're really lucky. Lots and lots of online resources. Um, lots and lots of help, actually. And I am part of a community called the uh, OTS, Oxford Therapy Centre, 
which is a group of people and we're very, you know, I've got, uh, the, one, the one problem with being a therapist is you can get incredibly isolated because you work in isolation and you can't talk about your clients. So before my husband would come home and say, how's your day been? I'd be like, dicka, 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 dicka. now I'm like, fine. Because <laughs> you know, I can't break confidentiality. I might talk about things in a general way, but I can't talk about it in a specific way. And do you have a therapist? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And is it important for therapists to have therapists? I think so. Yes, I think it's really important. And how um, does that help? It's like peeling an onion, isn't it? You get to a bit and you think, oh, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm all right now. And then, you, and then something else happens and then you realise that maybe, maybe you need a bit of help. And you find it easier to share with your therapist than your husband? Um, well, I share anything with anyone, you know, I'm like a sort of Labrador puppy, I don't feel particularly private about things at all, I'm not a very private person, I'm an oversharer, <laughs> so I don't find it that difficult. So what's the thing you found hardest about being a therapist? Uh, as a journalist, I'm quite goal-focused, and that's difficult. You know, I might push things forwards too quickly to get to the end, to get to the bit where I can help or there can be change or, you know, I think that's why I like teens because teens want to get somewhere quite quickly. It all goes quite quickly. You know, I might be with a client for like weekly sessions for a year and after a year they'll suddenly say something like, well, I think it started, you know, when my mum died and I was two. And they might not have even said that for an entire year. <laughs> and there's parents just thinking, well, why didn't, you know, why didn't, or, or suddenly um, saying a year in, actually, I'm an identical twin, you know, because then you think, if we more something like that, they would have actually said if their mum passed away, but some, a bit of nugget like that, which actually would put an entirely different perspective on what they've told you, what they've told me. You know, if someone's a twin, that was, you know, that makes things a completely different kettle of fish, really. Or at least I might want to talk, or... Let's say they're a twin, but their twin died in the womb. Now, they might not think that's affected them. I, I, will, I will most likely have a very different opinion to that. Um, because from my training, I believe we have neonatal memory. And I think that is a really important piece of information. So you're never quite sure, you know, what's going on. You're never quite sure if you've got all the information. And quite often people come out with extraordinary things, quite far into therapy. Um, or, that, or that they've got, or suddenly they'll tell you they've got a long-lost brother that their father had with another woman. You know, all sorts of, I mean, families are really murky. People are always having children with other women left, right and centre. That no one's, and you, you've only found out five years ago, you know, and you're 40. Suddenly someone knocks on your door and says, I'm your brother, Jonas. You didn't know it existed. And then it turns out that your father, who you thought was a saint and was wonderful, so that was your mother, has got an entirely different family in a completely different country. You know, the extraordinary... And, and sometimes that might take time because it's really, really painful. And do you find it hard not to be judgmental? No, I don't find it hard at all. I think, you know, I think humans are complicated people. I don't necessarily believe that we do things from goodness. I think we have the capacity to do things from malicious, bad places. And I don't find that a difficult thing to, to understand. I think sometimes we want to wound and hurt. I do. <laughs> and someone said to me, do you? I mean, how can you say that? I was like, sometimes I really want to hurt my husband. I want to say nasty, vicious things to him because I'm angry with him. And I want to hurt him. And they, people at this, in this group were appalled. I felt really bad afterwards. She was saying, well, you would deliberately undermine him. And I was thinking, yes, <laughs> sometimes, not often. It doesn't mean to say I feel good about it, but it would be lying to say that the temptation isn't there. You know, if I'm angry and upset with him, to, 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 to lash out and do something or say something wounding. It's not a great trait, but it exists. Do you feel your views are heard at work? Mm. I don't, I, don't, I don't have anyone to say my views to. <laughs> so as a therapist, I guess, yes, because I will talk to myself about things. Uh, and do you find time to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do yeah. you tell yourself off? Do you sit in an armchair and think, gosh, I should have handled that better? 
yes, I write notes and I will note those things out. Also, I have supervision with an experienced therapist. So I will talk to him about my work and we'll work through things. So yeah, that's part of the process. Okay. Uh, do you feel the organization cares for my well-being? As a therapist, yes, yeah, we're all about well-being. So yeah, absolutely. Do you care for your own well-being? Yeah, yeah, I do. Whether or not I do a very effective job, I don't know, but I do. Yeah, I do care for Because you must be under huge pressure. I can't imagine what it'd be like to spend your entire working life listening to other people talk about yeah, their problems really tiring. and their <laughs> Yeah, it is really tiring. Um, yeah, and I have to be really careful. You know, I, there's a lot of burnout in therapy. So what do you do to make sure you don't I, your own I walk every day for an hour. I've got three dogs. Uh, I've got a collie and a, a kind of a Labrador sort of thing. And a dog from Greece that, I, that we brought back home. I have no idea what she is. What's she called? Aggie. She's called Aggie and she's really, really funny looking. And she's really sweet. Um, and the collie needs a lot of exercise. So I walk the dogs every day, which I really like. And I live somewhere very, very beautiful. I'm really fortunate. And I do yoga. And I have the kids. The kids are a gas, you know. We cook dinner every night. We have dinner together every night. And we, we laugh. I mean, they're really funny. They make me laugh a lot. Uh, my 16-year-old is so funny. And he's so energetic. And he's so up, 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 up. He's a really optimistic human being. And I just like being around him. None of my kids are drains. They're all, they're all radiators. What's your best advice if you meet a drain? Well, it depends are if you're you a radiator. It depends if you're a radiator or oh, if a you're radiator, a drain. I'm a radiator. Yeah, most therapists would be radiators, or I wouldn't be able to do the job. No, but I'm a massive radiator. I, you know, I kind of think good things can happen to most people. I really do think that. And it's like, I, I, sometimes people come for a bit of love coaching because they say, I've given up my love life. And I'm like, there's definitely someone out there. There's someone out there for everybody. There absolutely is. Drains don't... So what I'll say to a drain, when they come and go, I want to meet somebody. I say, well, who do you want to meet? Well, I don't want them to have brown eyes or blue eyes or green eyes. So I say, okay, essentially, you don't really want to meet anyone. I can be, so I can be quite tough talking with drains. You know, I can say, actually... Uh, you're being too picky and let's work on who you want to meet and how you're going to meet them. And da, 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 da. Um, so I think the thing to do with drains is to recognise why they're a drain and what they're getting out of being a drain. Otherwise they wouldn't be drains. Um, and they're quite frightened of being radiators because radiators are quite out there, aren't they, and quite exuberant and energetic. So are we born radiators or drains or do we become radiators or drains? I don't know, it's a big question. I was the youngest of four kids and I think sometimes where you are in the family plays quite a lot of, plays a part in it. I, I, I kind of scooted around the, at the bottom of the family and lots of other stuff was going on I was just sort of scootering about having a relatively nice time. And I was very, very looked after by my eldest siblings, who were uniformly nice to me. But they weren't that nice to each other. I look at my four kids. My eldest son definitely bears the brunt, without a shadow of a doubt. And he feels incredibly responsible for the well-being of his siblings. And they turn to him all the time. My daughter's been having a really difficult time recently. And she probably brings him every single day. He's at uni. And he talks to her every day. Um, now, I think that's a really wonderful thing, but I can also see it could potentially be quite damaging for him because he sees himself as... He's a rescuer, really. And uh, that's how he finds self-worth. And actually, that, in the end, needs a balance. You know, he needs to be loved for him, not because he's a shoulder to cry on. He's really good at it. And I, I want, you know, or every time something dodgy goes on, I want to ring him up and go, Raymond, please come home, please help me, I can't cope. And I just have to go, stop it, stop it, don't ring him, don't, don't, don't text him. He's coming home, he's finishing soon, I'm so excited. I'm like, yay, he's going to come back home. And then he came home for a night, he came home for Mother's Day and said, uh, I've got something to tell you. I was like, what, what, you're going to have a baby, fantastic. Because uh, I'm desperate to be a grandmother. 
He was like, no, I'm not having a, we're not having a baby. I'm only 22. I said, 22 is a good age to have a baby. Anyway, he gets really annoyed with me. But he said, actually, I think, I think I'll come home for a bit, then I think I might have to move out. I was like, move out? Leave the family home? Where are you going to go? My husband was like, yay. So you've got to let them go. I've got to let them go. I've got to let them all go. So nature or nurture or both? Combination. Combination. Okay. Do you really feel depressed, anxious at work? Um, I sometimes feel anxious. I don't feel depressed. I don't get depressed, touch wood. But I can get anxious about, you know, if a client's coming in and I know it's going to be a difficult session or I have a couple that are warring and they every week they scream at each other. They make, I feel really anxious. They're coming today, actually. I feel a little bit anxious already. So I probably I do get anxious. So I, what would that be, like a six or a five or something? Uh, well, ten is that you are rarely... Um, no, so I probably get anxious like once a week, maybe, maybe more than that. If I was to be really, yeah, I reckon I might be a, a, a five on that one. Okay. But I don't get depressed. Oh, yes, I do. That's a ten. I, I do feel you do something worthwhile. Absolutely. So I'm going to score a ten on that And what one. would you have been when you were a journalist? Oh, no, don't do anything worthwhile as a journalist. No, maybe like five. Some things are worthwhile. Okay. Uh, do, so, do you feel proud to work for an organisation? I think about, you know, the Oxford Therapy Centre I work for. Yeah, I feel really proud to work for them. I think the work that they do is amazing. Um, and I think they work hard for community and we offer a lot of free things and subsidised things. So I do feel really proud of working for them. So, 10? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how long do you want to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Yeah, absolutely. If they were therapists and they were, yeah. So what, what about, um, so thinking about that is, mm. would you recommend to your friends and family to be a therapist? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no. I don't know anyone would want to be a therapist. Uh, no, I think it's really hard work and it's really poorly paid and you have to take a rigorous inventory of your own psychotherapy and psychopathology and it's incredibly painful and difficult. So, no. It has to be very specific. Sort of, no, not a Nords. I mean, uh, it would depend on the individual. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean, so why would anyone children. want to take a massive pay cut, like I have? You know, massive pay cut uh, and scrabble around trying to, you know, trying to pay for things that I never had to worry about. But then I don't mind that. Quite like that. You know, I reckon I just wasted money before. Now I'm really much more frugal. My husband and I literally, we don't need any money. We only need to eat. We don't eat that much anyway. We worked the other day. If we didn't have children, we'd literally live on about, you know, 10 quid a, a week or something. We never go anywhere. We don't go out. We don't go to the theatre. I do spend money on going on holiday, though. That's my thing, holidays. But if, if I, you know, we could just toddle around on the boat. Mm, anyway, what would, would I, my, if one of my kids wanted to be a therapist, oh, no, I think, yeah. Well, I'm not really quite sure. There's one of them I think would make a fantastic therapist. My third son would be a brilliant therapist and I'd be delighted if he wanted to be a therapist. Uh, the other three I don't think would be in any way suited to it, but they might be later on in life. So what do I say? Five? Do you feel you are treated with respect? Yeah, I do. My clients are really... I've got lovely clients. So ten? Eight, nine? I reckon nine, because some of them are a bit naughty. How are they naughty? Um, well, this, the, the couples that make me very anxious who are coming today, I've put down very clear parameters for them and said, I'm only going to continue to work with you if you stick to this. Because screaming and shouting every week, you know, I'm, you're paying me money to listen to you both scream and I now feel that it's immoral. I don't want to take your money and listen to you scream. So you can either go and find someone else because I feel immoral about it. You know, I can't take your money and, and, and feel completely ineffectual. <laughs> or that actually you're paying me to watch you play out this really nasty situation. Um, so you're either going to abide by my boundaries and we're going to do this my way, or, or you're going to have to leave. Do I enjoy my job? Yes, I love my job. I really love my job. Do you love your job more than being a journalist? Way more. Massively more. So what are you going to score yourself? Ten, I love my job. I'm really, I And what would I you score yourself as a journalist? 
And I loved being a journalist as well until it all got went a bit dodgy, so about eight. Mm -hmm. I don't have a line manager. Do you feel you have a good relationship with your line manager? Search yourself, really. Yeah. Or your husband, or your kids. Or your my husband isn't my line manager. <laughs> or your dog. My dog. Yeah, my dogs are good line managers. <laughs> They're quite good therapeutic dogs. Uh, what should I say then on this one? Should I say a ten? I think you're probably going to have a pretty good relationship with yourself. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel you're being developed? Yes, on a daily basis. So you are being developed. How, what, what are you yes. going to score yourself? Ten, a ten, ten, yes. You're yes. becoming more worldly wise by the day. Do you feel happy at work? Yes. Yes, I do. Happy, yeah. I mean, I'm happy with my work. Now, we've got oh. these three questions and then we'll try and match you. Right. Uh, against the world out there. So the three questions, the, the three things we need to know, what three things would you do to improve your workplace happiness? I would like a separate, I would like to have the means to build myself a separate therapy place at home. You know, so that I would have a separate little... Your own space. My own space. I'd really like that. Okay. Number two. Um, I'd like to work, I would like to, what three changes? I would, this is what my aim is. I need to do a bit of a better balance. I, I work too much. So I would like to be able to reduce my hours of work. I'm not very good at saying no, right? So if someone phones me out and says, I really, really need to see a therapist and I'm in hell and could you just please, please, please squeeze me in? The word no doesn't come out of my mouth, right? I might look at my diary and think, where on earth am I going to squeeze that person in? But I will find a little space. And I need to start saying, no, I'm afraid I'm full. So you're going to need to talk to your line manager? Yeah. I've got to talk to the line manager. Um, and I need to have the confidence to charge more. <laughs> well, I mean, my supervisor said to me, why are you charging, you know, you're not charging enough. So there's something in that, isn't it? There's something around worth somewhere along the line. And I'm when do you think you will feel confident to charge more? I'm going to give myself a deadline, and I think what I'm going to say is it's either from September this year or January. I can't work out when is it a new year thing or is it a new kind of school year thing. Uh, but I am going to put my charges up. So now we go through these questions to, um, to uh, filter you against others. What is your age range? I am 45 to 54. Oh, what am I? Management or non-management? I think you're very much management now, Okay, aren't you? I'm management. Uh, which job from this list most reflects what you do? What have we got? I'm sure we haven't got a therapist, but... Uh, we'll have to be other. Which industry you work in? Oh, yeah. Mm. There's health. Uh, mental health, isn't it? Um, it's not education. Healthcare? I reckon healthcare is the closest, yes. Which country do I live in the UK? Uh, and the last question is, what is my ethnicity? I am white Caucasian. Right, now, now we get to see the results, yeah? Yeah. So it takes about 10 seconds. Right. And this should compare you to people who are your age range, your gender, who work in healthcare. Okay. Um, uh, other will be random, it all worked it through. So, yeah, so it's and giving scrolling. you results of um, happiness. Com it's a comparison, yeah. So as it, it, were, it will as give it you were. an absolute score, but then right. it will compare it to everybody else who's filled in the survey. Yeah. Over 10,000, and it will compare you also to people who work in healthcare. So your happiness rate yeah, is I'm a like, whopping I'm really 931 happy. out of 1,000. Yeah. So you are, you are very yes, happy at I'm work. Yes, I am very happy at work. And if we go down, we can see that compared to people in healthcare, you are much happier. The global average, so the average of all the people who've taken the survey in the last year, yes. is 652, yes. Yes. so you're 931. Yes. And people who are in healthcare who've taken the survey are 598, mm. so they're below mm. the average. Mm. But you're well above that group as well. And then if you look I at am. the different areas, the six areas we've talked through, mm. 
uh, your lowest is reward and recognition. Mm. Uh, you are high on recognition, but as you said, uh, from a pay perspective, lower. Information and empowerment and well-being, you're uh, pretty good. Yeah, you're 100 percent. And then the other one that's uh, uh, slightly lower, although still incredibly high, yeah. uh, is instilling pride. And if we go down to your well-being, what we do is we plot you on the well-being index. Mm. And this is really around the questions that you were answering about, do you feel anxious and depressed, uh, and the relationships that you have. And here you are well above the global average. On the particular question, do you feel anxious and depressed, you scored mm. yourself a 5 out mm. of 10. But on a combination of questions, and there are four questions we plot this on, you come above the global average, and actually you're thriving in that sense. If somebody scores below seven, we recommend that they do take the um, NHS well-being yeah. test. Yeah. Um, uh, but in your case, you scored highly on four questions, but on that one particular one, you were a bit low. And then there are two sets of questions about um, how you enjoy your job. The first is the stickiness index. And the stickiness index plots um, whether you are likely to stay in your job mm, or leave mm. your job. And you'll see there that you are above the mm, global yeah. uh, index. So you are in the box that says that uh, uh, you enjoy your job and you're going to stay. And then the very last one is career development. If we scroll down. And on career development, again, you're in the apostles box. So... Um, apart from saying that you really wouldn't recommend your family and friends <laughs> to be therapists, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the other questions that are indicators of this, uh, you are very much in the apostle box of the work that you do. Oh, goody. So, you have scored uh, yes. very highly. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I've got two last questions for you. Mm. That's okay. Yeah. First one, uh, which song makes you feel happiest when you hear it? Uh, ooh, makes me feel happy. Well, you see, <laughs> I don't think it makes me feel happy, but the song I, that well, something that transports me is um, In Paradisum and Foray's Requiem, which I, I don't know, moves me. Sometimes to cry. Um, but, but uh, yeah. What do I listen to? Oh, I love Van Morrison. But then, I like songs that make me cry. Gone down the old man. You see, I like songs I feel moved by. I'm not that interested in being happy. I like being moved. You know, I like I'm, the songs have memories. And that's, I like to, you know. I was very happy with my eldest son's father for a short period of time. And he introduced me to Van Morrison. I knew a bit of Van Morrison, but he was from Northern Ireland and Van Morrison really meant something to him. And I remember... Uh, very soon after we first met, we went to Northern Ireland, which was fascinating. And then we drove down to Inniskillen, and it was bizarrely really hot, which it never is in Northern Ireland. And he was playing kind of brown-eyed girl in the car, and we went down, and then it was really, really hot, and no one was around, so we took our clothes off and jumped in the lake and swam. And then it was really romantic and really lovely. Just like that. Um, it all went wrong after that, but never mind. Uh, so I like that. That reminds me of that time when I was, when we were really, it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah, so I like that. And last question. If you could nominate anybody to do the Workplace Happiness Survey, who would you nominate? Uh, one of my clients, um, who I think, she's 25, she's a little, in, she's Indian, She's beautiful, she's clever and talented, and she's in the wrong job. She's, you know, there's a job, in fact, I've told her to do it. There's a job out there for her, you know, that would be the right job, she's, but she hasn't quite found it yet. And I think mm. it would really help her to focus on what kind of job, what kind of thing it is that would work for her. And separately on the site, there's a yeah. career test. Yes, and yeah, yeah. Myers Briggs as well. Yes, so she's gonna. I think the career test would be good for, her and the Myers Briggs would be good for her. Um, of course, a lot of the reason why people can't walk away or feel they can't is because of fi is financial. Financial, if you're, you know. But I, I think life is too short. And as I say to my kids, life is too short to do a job that you don't like and you're miserable in. 
you know, I am so lucky that I found a job that I really love. Really lucky. I've done two jobs I really, really love, so I've been very blessed. Well, on that note, Lucy Cavendish, thank you very much uh, for your time. Thank you. For doing the survey. And it's fantastic to see that you're so happy in your <laughs> new course as a therapist. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.